Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're going to finish our message series on Acts today. Last week, uh, we were in Acts chapter 27. Paul was finishing his journey of Rome. But before we kind of do that, I want to take a wide look at what God has been doing through Luke's writing in the book of Acts. We've been following God's work from Acts 1 all the way to the end, from what he's doing in Jerusalem to the outskirts of the world. But we start to see that that's actually not just Uh, a complete accurate representation. It's not just God's work and the things that he's doing. He's literally fulfilling promises that are thousands of years old. Now we did a message series on Isaiah last year and we touched on some of this. I just wanna call this to your memory, Isaiah 49, six. It says, it is to light excuse me, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. This is the prophet seeing the Lord speak to the servant, which was Jesus. And he says, I'm gonna make you as a light for the nations and my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. That was a promise that God made to um, Isaiah through, through the prophet Isaiah. And now we're watching that promise be fulfilled 700 years later in the book of Acts. All of, these, um, all of this text in the book of Acts is a fulfillment of God doing what he said he would do. And so while we look at this of like the acts, the works of God working through his apostles, this book is also a study in how God always fulfills his promises. Always, if God says he's going to do something, he will do that thing. That's really important. Because the temptation that our flesh gives us or that the enemy comes in and starts whispering in our ear is like, uh, maybe, maybe he's not gonna do what he said or maybe what he said isn't actually this. Maybe you heard it wrong, so maybe you should try this other thing over here. That was the deception that started in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it's still the deception that's used today. But this book stands as a reminder to us that God always fulfills his word. And his plan and his word is that the fame of his name will reach the entire world. It will spread to the entire planet that God, Yahweh, is the God of the entire world, not just the Christians, not just a select group of people. He is the God of the entire universe. He made everything that we see, and everyone will have to give an account for that truth. So now we get back into last week. He was, Paul was heading towards Rome. He was up up in, you know, all kinds of turmoil, rough seas, shipwreck, sorrow. And we talked about how that uh, kind of microcosm was, uh, uh, looks like what our world looks like today, just completely hopeless, but how he modeled Christian witness in that. So we're ending, we ended last week at 27, we're picking up on 28, and where we're picking up in 28 in the story is that he is now shipwrecked on this island called Malta. 
So before we get into the actual message in reading 28, I wanna throw this map up on the screen for a quick recap of where we were. So in 27, we know that he started over here in Caesarea. He had appealed to Caesar through one of his four trials to go to Rome. He didn't wanna go back to Jerusalem and spend time before the Sadducees and the Pharisees in order to get an unfair trial. He appealed to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. So uh, after two years of sitting around, um, he was was then uh, transported from Caesarea to Sidon. He went up here and uh, picked a, a different boat with the Roman centurions in Myra. They started heading this way. They started facing unbelievably rough seas and they uh, put in here at the port of Fair Havens. It was mid-November. It was not sailing season. They should have just put in at a city for the winter and not continued. So what their plan was, since Fair Havens was such a sh- small town, they were gonna go just right up here on the corner and catch a sm- another small town over here, but it was a little bigger than Fair Havens, and they were gonna stay there for the winter. The problem is that as they left the port and started going up here, this massive wind blew off of the island and kicked their ship out to sea, and then they were stranded and floating out here for about 14 days. Now, when we ended 27, they crash landed on Malta. The, the boat is completely broken apart, but everyone was saved. Not a single life was lost. They all made it to the island, and now they're on Malta. Today, they're gonna catch another ship after winter is done, probably mid-February, so about mid-November to mid-February is how long they're on Malta. They're gonna catch another ship, they're gonna go up to Syracuse, Regium, and they're gonna come up here along the coast of Italy, land, they're gonna come here to the, uh, the Forum of Appius, uh, there's a little section in there, and then he's eventually gonna get to Rome, and that's where the book is gonna end, and we'll cover all that. So kind of commit this to memory, this is the map of where we're heading today, purple, a blue was last week, and then purple was where we are today. So let's go to Acts chapter 28 and start in uh, verse 1. It says, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Now when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, (laughs) imagine that picture, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. And though he escaped from the sea, meaning that he didn't die at sea, justice has not allowed him to to live. Now that word justice in Greek is actually referring to the Greek goddess justice. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Full disclosure, this is not how I would have reacted to a snake if it was attached to my hand. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a really long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, oh, this guy must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, Poblios, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Poblios lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, put his hands on him, and he was healed. 
And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board everything that we needed. Now let's pause right there. What I wanna do is I wanna summarize what's happening in the life of Paul just for dramatic effect. So Paul, he's got this desire to preach in Rome. That's the end goal here. He's a prisoner, but that's of little concern to him. How he gets to Rome is not really important. He just knows that he got to get to Rome because the Lord promised him, you're gonna testify about me in Rome. You're gonna preach in Rome. So he knows this is gonna happen. He's currently shipwrecked, and so he decides to be helpful, help out with the chores. It's an interesting indication of where his mind was at this time. He's not sitting over in the corner pouting. He's not frustrated, shaking his fist at God. You made this promise, and clearly this isn't Rome. Lord, you're not fulfilling your promise. No, he gets to work. He starts working on the chores. Now, he's rewarded with, for his hard work with a snake bite. He takes that snake bite, he shakes it off, and the way that he reacts to that snake bite, the way that he reacts to his circumstances begins to impact the people on the island. They start shifting their perspective how they view him and they see him in a different light. And because of his witness, because of the way he conducted himself, he earned the right to be able to speak truth into this people group on Malta and they were blessed because of it. Now the head of the island's dad is now healed and now everybody who's got sick loved ones, they're bringing it to Paul, he's praying for them and they're getting healed. Now you can't tell me that that's the only thing Paul was doing because this man can't help but preach the gospel so long that kids fall out of windows, hit the pavement, die, he raised them back to life and begins to continue to preach. So I think it's implied here that he didn't just heal them but also preach the gospel to them. And the point I'm trying to make is that we talked last week about what the impact of one Christian in a culture can do and I think that this points to that Um, uh, teaching point from last week. The whole island was impacted by the life of Paul. The way he chose to conduct himself in the midst of turmoil spoke volumes to people about his God. And that's really important. And it goes back to what we were talking about before we started the message and we were praying about how while we need to take our Christian life seriously, not just for the purpose of you growing, but because there is a world that in some ways we have kind of decided isn't worth this message anymore because they're too lost. And maybe in some ways we've kind of backed off of the evangelism and sharing the gospel with people because like you, you're just, you're too crazy. This world is too nuts. So we're just gonna, we're gonna back up and we're just gonna wait for the Lord's return. That was not his command to his people. His command is to bring the lightness into the darkness. And this is what we see Paul doing here. He's not moping, he's working. Now there's an interesting thing I'd like to bring out before we continue going into verse 11. There's a theme that is a pretty biblical theme that I'd like to visit just for a moment. And it is the ancient worldview of how involved the spirit realm was in the lives of people in the physical world. Now this gets a little dicey 
depending on your denominational background. Some of you are just like, mm, uh, it's kind of just like us and God. Maybe there's some angels and stuff, but like, that's it. And some of you grew up in real charismatic churches where they've got like flags hanging on the walls and there's always somebody doing a lap, maybe a tambourine or two. And just like, yeah, we're gonna talk about angels and demons, let's go, okay. There are weird extremes that have denominational roots, but what I'd like to do is help us grow in our understanding of what is the biblical way to think about the world that we live in. And the biblical way to think about the world that we live in is that there is more to the flesh and blood stuff that you see on planet Earth. The Bible goes to great lengths to talk about things in this world that you can't see that manipulate things that you can see. Ephesians chapter six takes an interesting turn when Paul is encouraging families. Hey, uh, husbands, love your wives. Hey, um, children, honor your parents. Um, hey, uh, bond servants, uh, obey your masters. Masters, be good to those who are working uh, uh, under you. And then it takes this hard right turn where it starts talking about the spiritual things of this world. But e even though you're supposed to practice these things and this is good stuff, don't ever forget that you wrestle not against flesh and blood that there are rulers and powers and demonic forces that are at work manipulating and fueling the economies of this world. And so you don't get to just point your finger and say, man, that's politics like usual, or that's Hollywood, they're up to the same old things they've always been up to, pushing whatever's agenda. It doesn't look, that's not, there, that's not all there is to it. Biblically, we are a people who understand that these ideologies and these worldviews are being fueled from a very dark place. That there is an enemy called the devil. He's got an entire legion of demonic forces and what they do on a regular basis is stir up things that would draw God's creation away from him. That's biblical. And I'm mentioning this because we've talked about it often. We've talked about it in the book of Isaiah. I'm gonna do a couple callbacks a minute ago. But we're gonna get into this again when we get into the book of Revelation because it's, John includes it pretty heavily. But when we were studying the book of Isaiah last year, Isaiah 30 and Isaiah 51, there's this theme that I touched on. Um, and it's, it's this idea that there is, like the sea, the ocean, uh, is in some way kind of fueled or it is a, it is a visible, visible, <laughs> visible representation of the chaos that is taking place in this spirit realm that you can't see. And it's personified by this word Rahab uh, or this uh, sea dragon. And so in the ancient world, there's this understanding that out there in the ocean, the way that it just kind of like storms blow up, the way that the, 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 the currents work, the, the way that how violent it is out there and the sea creatures and stuff, there's more to it than just like the moon affecting the tides of the earth. There's a spiritual component to what's going on out there and when I look at that ocean, it reminds me of the turmoil that is taking place behind the scenes that I often forget about. Are you, are you following me? So I'm like, nope, can we get to the next point? I lost you. 
The point I'm trying to make is that our ancestors in the faith lived with this understanding that the ocean was a physical representation of the demonic forces at work in the world right behind what we see. And I'm saying this because um, it, it, that worldview, that understanding makes uh, specific texts make more sense. Like when you're reading about Jesus in the boat with the disciples and the disciples are freaking out because a storm blows up on the Sea of Galilee and then he stands up and he commands the storm to cease and they're blown away. They're like, this guy has control over the weather? Well, yes, they're impressed that he has control over the weather, but they're also impressed because the biblical worldview of a first century Hebrew man was that this ocean we're out here on, this Sea of Galilee, it's in some way controlled the unpredictable weather patterns. It has some relation or correlation to the, uh, the spiritual realm behind us. And so this guy is not just demonstrating the authority of being a good teacher, he also has the power over the demonic realm. That story starts making sense. It also makes sense when in Isaiah 51, nine, when Isaiah talks about the power of Yahweh being the kind of guy who slays the sea dragon, Rahab. He's the only entity in the universe who has the power to still the chaos and to end the turmoil. And I mention this because in quite a few commentaries that I read this week, it was, uh, became very evident that Isaiah 20, or excuse me, Acts 27 and Acts 28 contain some of these elements that are easy to read over, but if you read, if you let the text speak for itself and you kind of allow that uh, ancient mindset to get into your mind, things start making more sense. You've got God telling Paul, I want you to go to Rome and testify to me about me. You're, you're gonna go here and you're gonna witness. And the moment that happens, cue the trials, cue the beatings, cue the, cue the prison, cue the chaos, storms, cue all of the shipwrecks, and then you culminate it with a serpent biting you. These are not just empty themes. And I'm bringing this up because we're heading in a, in, a, in a direction where if you don't start understanding that these themes are mentioned and then re-mentioned and then re-mentioned, then when we get to Revelation, none of it will make sense to you. But this theme of serpent, it is, um, it, it is baked through the beginning of the story all the way to the end of the story. Like this serpent, it's, a, it's an entity. I'm not saying that Satan was here biting this guy, but I'm saying that the, the motif or the representation of the serpent character, this reminds us that there is more at work than this world and we don't just wrestle with flesh and blood. But the good news is that if you want to dismiss all that, you're like, well, it's a little too weird for me. I'm just comfortable with just the storm. It's a snake bite. There's nothing more to it. God's not the kind of God who weaves themes and stories into actual things. There's no teaching point. It's just, it is what it is. You still walk away with the same conclusion. That in the midst of chaos, in the midst of turmoil, whether it's motivated by human means or fueled by demonic forces, God has control over all of it. And in the end, he always brings about his purposes. And his purposes is that he's seeking and he's saving. And it happened on this tiny island. 
after a man who trusted Jesus with his whole heart was shipwrecked and got bit by a snake. Why is that so valuable for us? Because it frames out for your life how you're supposed to be thinking about most of the normal, mundane, boring, bad, everyday things that happen in your life. You may think that missing this lunch appointment or this failure or saying this wrong thing has disqualified you or it just it means that all, all bets are off or things are, no, it, it actually means quite the opposite because we serve a God who is over all and has the ability to redeem all things. It's good news, single moms. It's good news, parents who have kids who won't listen to you. It's good news. Wives who, has, who have husbands who don't really love Jesus. This is good news for Christians who live in a world that hate our God. Because it reminds us that it doesn't matter what's going on, our God is over it. And he will bring about his plans through it. Amen? Okay, let's continue, verse 11. It says, after three months, we set sail in a ship and we had wintered in this island. It was a ship of Alexandria and at the helm of it were the twin gods as a figurehead. The gods were Castor and Pollux. They were divinities of the sailors and they were in the constellation of Gemini. And Luke includes this, I believe, because he's trying to draw out the influence that the demonic has over what's going on in this trip and how God uses that to bring them to safe harbor. He's literally using the plans that the enemy meant for evil for his good. They're riding in a boat with the front of the boat. It's got the head of Greek gods carved into it. I'm gonna take your nonsense and I'm gonna bring my people to safety through it. But putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. On the second day, we came to Petuli. And there we found the brothers and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome and the brothers were there. And when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now pause, because what's happening now is Paul has finally made it to Rome and the brothers have come out to meet him. And verse 15, we're told that he took courage. But there's so much more to that word courage. It's a Greek word that literally means filled with encouragement. And I want you to imagine, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. You have been under house arrest for two years. You've gone through four trials for the same thing. You finally see hope that you could start heading to Rome and plead your case to get some freedom. And immediately what happens when you get on the ship is storms, ends in a shipwreck, your snake bit. Almost three years have passed since God made that promise and now you've made it to land and the first thing you see are a bunch of brothers who are excited to see you and it fills you with encouragement. And I want you to just imagine what it was like for Paul to be filled with that encouragement and I want you to just take that, borrow that idea and put it right in your life to start reframing how you see our gatherings on Sunday morning as a church. 
The purpose of us coming together is not to fulfill some duty or check off some box. The reason why we get together in this gym and worship Jesus together and, together and study the word together and not just, I'll, I'll pre-record it and put it out and you can watch it whenever it's comfortable for you at home is because there is an enjoyment, there is a joy and encouragement that is tied to all of us doing that thing in the same room together. And I'm sorry, but there is just nothing that substitutes that. There is nothing as good as God's people getting together in the same room, worshiping the same Lord, hearing each other sing loudly and worship Jesus and study his word. There is no substitute for that. And the enemy will convince you that there is. He will convince you that there are substitutes that are just as good, but there just isn't. There's nothing as good as getting together with God's people in person. So I want that to be not just an encouragement to Paul, but I want it to be an encouragement to us. I want, us, I want it to frame out why we gather as a church on Sundays. I want it to frame out why we gather together in small groups in each other's homes. Because there's more at stake than you just learning something that you didn't know before you showed up. There's an encouragement, there's an equipping that takes place when we all gather together so that when we're sent out, we're doing the mission effectively. You follow? Let's get on to verse 17. This is after three days, he called together the local leaders of the, Jew, the Jews. And when he had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jeru Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they finished, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am currently wearing this chain. He was literally chained to a Roman guard while he was under house arrest. Everywhere Paul went, this Roman guard went. And they said to him, well, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers came here as reported or spoke any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect that we know that everywhere it's spoken against. So we don't know much about this, even though you wrote a letter to us, even though you wrote the book of Romans, I don't know if these guys didn't read it or if they're just playing, but they're letting on that they don't know much about, all, all we know about Christianity is that like people don't like it. And nobody from Judea came up and told us that you're a bad Jew, like, so how about you just speak for yourself and we'll listen. So he appointed, this is verse 23, he appointed a day for him. They came to him at this lodging in great numbers and from morning till even he, evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now let's pause right there. Paul's coming off a two to three year stint of being in prison under house arrest, trials, storms, shipwrecks and snake bite. What does he do when he reaches Rome after a three-year period of being under turmoil? Well, he takes a three-month vacation. Nope. 
He takes three days and then gathers everyone together. Now follow me, because this is gonna hurt a little bit. What Paul is modeling for us is the opposite of the self-care culture that we're being sold today. I don't like that. (laughs) What Paul is modeling for us is that what he wants more than anything is to treasure Jesus and to make him known among the nations. What is not most important is to get the right state of mind to kind of frame out some comfort, to just relax, because it's been a hard three years. You guys don't understand. It's been very difficult. (laughs) You could send some people my way, I could talk about my feelings, and just kind of, I'll talk about Jesus when I'm ready. I don't wanna overcommit. I don't wanna sign up for too many things. No, we're looking at a guy who's modeling a kind of Christianity for us that is completely foreign to most of us. He's not saying, now that I'm here, I'm so glad I'm here, but I'm under house arrest, I don't know how long it's gonna be. This is, it's been very mentally taxing on me, so I just kinda need to fit into my schedule and and I'll I'll allow ministry to fit into like this new normal. I just, I've gotta kind of figure out what my new normal life is. No, this dude is running on a completely different fuel than most of us run on. And I don't know about you, but I want what he's eating for breakfast and not whatever the world's been feeding us for breakfast. Because we're at a point in history where we're like, okay, well, like, like there's some good things from the world that, ha- that can tell us about like, how we can live our greatest, most fulfilled, best life. And there's probably a couple things in here, but this book's old dated. So, so you know, let's, let's take some of this good stuff. Let's take some of this good stuff and let's find like what this looks like and then we'll just munch on this. This garbage. It's a worldly system that's been fueled by the kingdom of darkness to do one thing for you, and, it is, and that is to help you take more comfort in a normal, predictable, average life than what is being presented to us by people of faith. If you wanna know what it looks like to follow God, take a moment and read Hebrews 11. There's not a whole lot of like, well, I don't know if I can like commit to this or really be involved in, there's a whole lot of people who are leaving homes and villages because God said go and they didn't have the full answer but they just did it. There's a whole lot of people being fed to lions. There's a whole lot of people receiving their dead called back to them. There's a whole lot of people who said, you know what, I'm not gonna bow down and worship your God. If you wanna throw me in the fire, throw me in the fire. There's a whole lot more of people saying, you know what, I just spent three years in torture and pain, three months on a beach without home. I'd love to just vacation for a few months and then I'll get back to the work. There's not a whole lot of that. You know what there's a whole lot of? There's a whole lot of people saying, I'm not living my best life now. I'm looking forward to the return of the king and every moment I have, I wanna maximize for Jesus so that when I get to him, that's when I enter my rest. Now you're like, well, I don't know about that. Aren't we supposed to like rest every seven days? 
There is a pattern that's supposed to be built into our lives where we rest weekly. But the purpose of that rest is less for you to have self-reflection and to fill your love tank and more to remind you that you are not God and you can't work seven days a week. Even God rested, so who do you think you are working more than the Creator? That's the purpose of the day of rest. And the cycle that we're being presented here and the invitation that the scripture is giving us is to live a life that looks vastly different, that's not filled with pillows and comfy blankets. It's filled with surrendering and, and giving away. Now, I'm not saying you can't have comfy blankets. All I'm saying is that if your life is for comfy blankets, it can't also be for Jesus. If your life is for all of these things that the world is trying to sell you, if that's what your steady diet is is on, you don't have any appetite for Jesus. If your steady diet is railing on your husband, if your steady diet is being unhappy with your family and wanting to spend more time at work than raising your kids, you are doing the opposite of what this word is commanding us to reshape our lives into. It's, un, it's uncomfortable, we don't like it, it doesn't feel good, but the invitation Jesus gave us wasn't, come to me you, and I will make you feel good. His invitation was, come to me and die, and you will be raised into a new life that is far greater than any life you could have ever imagined or carved out for yourself. We've got this weird thing in America where it's just like, well, America's just got like this Christian thing. We just, as long as you're American, you kind of get adopted in this, like, and then you can, no, that's another ideological lie that the enemy has fueled. That if you're just close enough to Jesus, because there's a church on every corner, then somehow you're kind of like adopted into the thing. That's a lie. And it will, it will, you will be rewarded with the end of your life standing before the creator. And you will say, Lord, Lord, and, and, and I lived in town with tons of churches. And I watched one on TV every now and then. And he will say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I never knew you. I want you to look at Paul's life and say, mine doesn't look like this, Jesus, change me. That's what I want for you today. I want this life to stir you for a hunger to be bold and to live differently than you previously have ever in your life. Now let's go to verse 24. He says, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And there was a collective sigh. And after disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet. I need to read that again. So, so he seriously just spent the last three years of his life trying to get to this point to preach to these people, and he spent morning till evening expounding on the Bible. There's no New Testament at this time because he's currently writing it while he's in prison. He's writing the book of Philippians. He's writing the book of Ephesians. He, he's, he's, the, the New Testament is literally being write, written right now. All they have is the Old Testament, so he spends morning till evening working through the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, trying to show them how, hey, you see this thing? Jesus. You see this thing? Jesus. You see when Daniel saw the Son of Man? Jesus. You remember Joshua talking to the angel? Jesus. 
Moses saw Jesus. The prophet Ezekiel saw Jesus. Zechariah saw Jesus. Isaiah, who was the servant? It was Jesus. And after this, this sermon, this is what happened, verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. What a letdown. All this work and half the people listen and half are like, I don't know about that one. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So, so this is what made everybody leave when Paul said this. You know what, guys? The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. I don't know about you, but this is an incredible letdown to me. He finally makes it to town. He spends morning till evening preaching the gospel. This is a huge letdown. Look, this is a ministry killer. This is an invitation for depression. I'm, I'm, I'm done. No more. I've had enough. But that's not what happened. Look in verse 30 and look at what he did. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed anyone who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What did he do in the face of people who said, I don't know what you think about that, Paul. Uh, I'm not interested. He continued to preach that same gospel for another two years. And he didn't just do that. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon. And these letters make up a, a large portion of our New Testament. So it's a disappointing message that the people that heard the message didn't want to respond to it, but was it wasted time? No. It may not be the outcome that he has expected, but it wasn't a waste of time and it wasn't an invitation to excuse himself from what God was calling him to do. Lord, uh, things didn't turn out like the way that I thought they would, so I'm just gonna go do my own thing now. It's not what he did, it's not what we're supposed to be doing. Now what's fascinating to me is the way that the book ends. What happened to Paul? Right? If this is like a novel that we, it's just like we're like writing to the editor like, hey, there's a chapter missing here. What's next? What happens to him? Well, from church history, we know that probably what happened at some point at the end of the two years, he got his uh, hearing before uh, Caesar. He was released. He probably traveled to Spain, preached in that area, was arrested again, then sentenced in Rome, and then killed. But it ends this way for a reason. Luke ends verse 31 with him preaching and proclaiming the Lord Jesus without hindrance and there's nothing more because Acts is not Luke, uh, excuse me, Acts is not Paul's story. Acts is God's story. And Luke chooses to end it the way he does. Some historians will say it was because that's as far as it got. He, he, maybe he intended to write another book after that. God knows what he's doing, and I think he ended it where he did for a reason. And I think the reason is, 
is that this abrupt ending is an invitation into what is next. So what you see is God working in the lives of Philip, in the life of Stephen, in the life of Peter, in the life of James, in the life of Paul, in the life of these centurions, in the life of Agrippa. What is God doing in the midst of all these people? And then it stops. Why? Because that abrupt ending is an invitation to ask the question, what is the Lord now doing in my life? I've now read 28 chapters that prove to me that God is on the move and he is working in the lives of his people. So what is he doing now today? This abrupt ending to this message series, to this book, is a call to ask yourself, what's next? And it's not what's next for Paul or what's next to the New Testament church, it's what's next for you. If this is a clear outline on what God is up to, is there a clear outline on what God is up to today? What is he doing in your life? And if you don't know, it's time to start praying because there's no shortage of him doing things. There is a shortage of you paying attention to it. So if you don't know what he's doing, it's because you're not listening. It's not because he's not moving. So on that, I want us to pray together. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.